Good morning. Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this, cannot, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, and he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, 
if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. If anyone must be first, oh, sorry. He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Yeah, that feels worthwhile doing. So much text. Um, everybody, my name is Johnny Morris, and I'm a pastor here. If you're new, again, so glad to have you. Uh, it is my honor to introduce to you Zach Medlin. Uh, so Zach Medlin's going to be preaching today. Zach has been a member of the community for two, two years? years? Two years. Two years, man. Um, you probably know him because he's often standing by the welcome desk, or he's standing by the door and greeting people. He has um, just an infectious personality and joy. So it's been a joy to be a part of his life, to have you a part of my house church, to know you. Um, Jack is also a chaplain um, up at a hospital, and he uses his gifts there to tend to wounds and hurts. Uh, so it's just, a, it's just so good to know you, and I'm really thankful that you're preaching. So everybody, would you welcome Zach as he preaches today? <laughs> Thank you, John. Oh, man, I wasn't expecting to get all emotional <laughs> before. Thank you, Johnny. Um, yeah, my name's Zach. I am a one of the dudes that goes to Missio. Um, Johnny and Heather asked me to preach, and I was absolutely thrilled at the opportunity to do that because I don't get the, the opportunity to do this often. Um, as Johnny said, I work as a chaplain, and so I'm in far more intimate settings with one to five people um, talking and discussing and sharing and exploring, and I don't stand in front of a multitude of folks and I'm the only one talking. That's not what I'm used to. So if you'll excuse my nervousness, but um, I'm thrilled to be up here. And while I'm on it, um, just very thankful for you all. As Johnny said, Steph, my wife, and I have been here for two years this month. Um, and as I was preparing this and thinking about you all and this community and this place, um, it just really shook me how um, integrated we are here how much we care about you all, how much we feel care for us. Um, it's incredibly beautiful. So thank you. Thank you so much. I feel really connected to you, and I, I just really love being here. So there you go. There's my little two cents about that. So speaking of connection, um, Mark. Yes, I love Mark. Mark is beautiful. Mark is 
fast-paced. Mark is raw. It moves quickly. Um, And I think there's a lot to be said for that because we connect with the characters and it portrays a very human portrait of Jesus. So I think this book, unlike some of the other Gospels, not saying that we don't connect with the other Gospels, but in the book of Mark, um, at least myself, I find a lot of empathetic connection. Jesus is human here. He's a, a suffering servant. The disciples serve as a mirror for us. Um, in reading these stories, we find ourselves and we find each other. We are all easily distracted. We are afraid like the disciples are. We are vain like the disciples are. And we are inefficient. But even amidst, even amidst that, even amidst these failures that we read throughout the narrative account of Mark, Jesus is present with them always. He's saying, I am here. I am with you. And we even read in the book of John, Jesus calls us friends. He says, you are my friends. And I think that that is on display here as well. So Mark is beautiful in a lot of those ways. So in that connection to these characters and this story, we find connection to each other. And we find connection to the one that we call Christ. And it is in these connections that we find redemption. It is in these connections that we find reconciliation for ourselves, for others, and for our world. And it is in this connection that we, um, we find out what all of this means. And so as we're going into Mark, as we're looking forward into chapter 9, um, I wanted to take a step back, if you wouldn't mind putting the first slide up there. So I thought before we get into what Mark 9 is saying, because there's a lot, if you didn't notice, there's like 50 verses. There's many, many things happening. You can imagine my woe when I am preparing, and I'm like, goodness gracious, what do you talk on? There's like seven different things that are worthy of an hour sermon apiece. Um, but we're gonna be, but, so that means we're focusing on narrative. We're focusing on what does the story say? What is Mark trying to tell us? And then... Um, By that, what is God trying to tell us? What is the Spirit trying to lead us into? And so I thought it would be helpful to look at what our emphases are in the book of Mark. And so the first emphasis that we've been looking at is table. What kind of table is Jesus setting? And then compare that to the table of Rome or the table of Herod. If we looked back at the sermons from Heather and Johnny, we remember that Herod's table, or the table of Rome, the table of the secular power, is concerned with domination, is concerned with control, is concerned with um, having authority over others. And then we compare that with what Jesus' table looks like. And Jesus' table is expanding. It's opening up to people. It's opening up to folks that you wouldn't expect it to. We're talking Gentiles. We're talking women. In Mark 9, we're talking about children Jesus' table is larger than what the societal norm would say. And so that is the first and the biggest thing, is what kind of table is Jesus setting? And then by connection to that, what kind of table are we setting? We are Christ's church. We are called to be Christ's presence on the earth. So what kind of table are we setting as well? We have this table right here where we come and meet each week. And it's symbolic and it's beautiful for our own personal salvation stories, but there's also this other question of what does this table look like to other folks? What are we saying to people that are not a part of this community whenever they come and look at it? So that's the first thing that I think we need to be aware of and be cognizant of as we're continuing to read through Mark, and especially in Mark 9. 
The second important thing that Mark is wanting us to look at is who is Jesus? What is Jesus' identity, and how does that challenge expectation? I know whenever I first read through the book of Mark, I was kind of frustrated even, I guess, because Jesus is super secretive. He's even fairly ambiguous. He's telling his disciples um, and these crowds of people, even people that he's healing, like, hey, don't tell anybody what just happened. Keep it to yourself. Um, I don't want anybody to know who I am. And that was always super frustrating to me because I grew up in a space where it's, you share Christ every chance you get, right? We're supposed to be missional and evangelical-minded. And then I read the words of Jesus and Mark, and I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Isn't he supposed to be sharing this? Isn't he supposed to be seeking and saving the lost? And I think that he is. And I think that Mark and the words that Jesus uses come about that in a different way. Um, He's doing these miracles. He's performing these things. He's teaching. He's flipping over the... Um, conception of power that these people have. He's saying the last will be first, the first will be last, and they're still not understanding it. And so I think the mystery serves as a way to get us into a different mindset, to show us a different way to think about this, because the disciples aren't getting it, the religious leaders aren't getting it, the crowds aren't getting it. They're not understanding what Jesus' identity is. And so he's using this mystery to point towards the cross, to get towards the cross. And you may ask, well, how does that help Jesus' identity? And that helps Jesus' identity because the heart of God is the suffering servant. The heart of God is sacrificial love, and the heart of God is to be the servant of all. And so the most powerful way that that is, um, is seen is through the cross. And so Jesus is saying, don't tell about these miracles but once the Son of Man has been given um, into the hands of men and has died and raised again, then go spread this message. It's to focus us in on who Jesus really is, and that is the Christ, the sacrificial God. So that's the second thing. You tracking with me so far? Everybody feel okay? Okay, right on. The third thing is failure. That is an interesting thing to be aware of, but it is ever-present throughout Mark's gospel, ever-present in the disciples, in the crowds, especially in the religious leaders, and even as we're reading in ourselves. Failure is a constant in this story. And what does failure mean? Um, I think the way that has struck me most as we've been looking at it is this idea of self-preservation, this idea of not being able to recognize who Jesus is. The disciples aren't getting it. These people are not understanding. And so there's this consistent theme of failure There's this consistent theme of there's no understanding here, even though Jesus is doing all these things and providing all these teachings. And the fourth thing is the way of the cross, Jesus' emphasis on the necessity of his death and resurrection. And this brings us to Mark 9. And I want to start Mark 9 off by saying that most people that study the Bible very seriously see the end of Mark 8 and Mark 9 as the beginning of, of the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And what I mean by that is that some of the focuses shift and some of the things that we've gotten used to shift. And so you can go to the next slide. So this is the first half of Mark. This is the miracles that are in the first half of Mark. So Mark 1 through Mark 8. So Jesus drives out an impure spirit, heals many, heals a man with leprosy, forgives and heals the paralyzed man, heals on the Sabbath, calms a storm, restores demon-possessed man, raises a dead girl, heals a sick woman, 
feeds 5,000, walks on water, heals a deaf and mute man, feeds 4,000, heals blind man at Bethsaida. Now we go to the next one from Riley. Here's the miracles in the second half. Heals a boy with an impure spirit, heals blind Bartimaeus. So you look at the, just the structure of what Mark is doing, what Mark is writing. It's clear that there's another emphasis that we're supposed to have. Jesus has been doing all these miracles. He's working these things. He's giving these teachings, and people still aren't understanding it. They still aren't understanding it. And so what takes the place of that? Well, that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 9. Um, at this point in the story, well, I guess I should say, at this point in the story, like we learned last week in Heather's sermon, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. This is a pivotal moment in the story. This is kind of, in a lot of ways, climactic, because Jesus has been putting himself out there, right? He's been being very, very vulnerable. He's been saying, this is who I am. He's been healing people, and it's radio static. It's radio static. The people aren't understanding it. And so in this moment, at the end of Mark chapter 8, Peter has this revelation. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter tells him, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But the interesting, the interesting thing about this is that even though Peter draws um, or identifies Jesus correctly, Jesus recognizes, or Peter recognizes rather, that Jesus is the Christ, he draws the wrong conclusion about it. So Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, but then what does he do? He goes, and after Jesus has done, has predicted his crucifixion, he goes and he rebukes Jesus. And if you remember the sermon from um, Heather last week, this is strong. Rebuke, the word there is strong. He takes Jesus aside and he says, this is not what you are supposed to do. This is not what this is supposed to look like. And you have to have a little bit of sympathy for him he grew up in a spot, he grew up in a place where the Messiah was supposed to look differently. It was supposed to be something more akin to what you would expect a, um, a Roman table to look like. It was, the, the Messiah was supposed to be more powerful, was supposed to come and enact change, and was supposed to make things happen. And so here's this guy that says, I'm the Messiah, but I must be handed over and I must die. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's funny, like the the illustration that came to my mind that maybe starts to grasp at this. I'm starting to read through Lord of the Rings again. And I was in the part where, you know, they're going through the Mines of Moria and everything. And you love Gandalf. Gandalf's the best character ever. He's this wise wizard. He always knows the answer. He's the coolest. And then he dies. I hope that, I'm sorry, that, I hope that's not a spoiler for you, but <laughs> Gandalf dies. So anyways, Gandalf dies and you're like, that's not, What's supposed to happen? They're lost without him. I don't understand this. <laughs> so I think that metaphor may fall short, but it at least gets at the human emotion that we feel that may be part of what Peter was feeling. This isn't supposed to be the way that this is going to happen. I'm expecting somebody that's going to come and get results for me, not somebody that's going to be handed into the religious leaders and the crowds and die, right? So... It's not expected. <laughs> Jesus is trying to show them the way of the cross. As we, as we saw with the emphases, it's not about miracles as much now. Jesus is going to show them who he is through a different way. And that comes through telling them um, that sacrifice is the heart of God. All right. So you'll forgive um, 
my preaching here, a lot happens in a short amount of time. Mark moves really quickly. He says, and then they go here, and then they go here, and then they go here. So there's not a lot of easy transitions. So we're going to go through this, and hopefully you'll be able to stick with me. So we've just had this moment. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, although they draw the wrong conclusion about it. And so they're moving off of the mountain, or they're not moving, they're moving up to the mountain where the transfiguration happens. And after this other failure, after this climactic moment of Peter expressing who Jesus really is and then drawing the wrong conclusion, they go up to the mountain. And if you are a Jewish person in the first century and you read about the transfiguration, a lot of red flags and a lot of bells would be dinging in your head. There's a lot happening that was foretold in the Old Testament here. Jesus becomes dazzling white. Jesus... um, is surrounded by Elijah and Moses, two crucial and central figures in the Old Testament. They're surrounded by a cloud. And then the voice of God speaks. There's all of these things that are happening. And if you are a Jewish person, this would remind you of the Old Testament. And if you are witnessing this, if you are Peter, James, and John, how could you not think, what is this? What is happening? And so the transfiguration happens. Um, And this is Jesus' biggest flex. I think of all the ways in which he's tried to show them that he is Christ, he is God incarnate. Out of all the ways that he could have shown them, this was the biggest one. This was the one where a little bit of divinity comes out. He's been a human, he's been suffering, he's been exasperated with these people. And here in this moment, you see a little bit of of God here, of the divine. And this is important because this is further um, cementing who Jesus is, and the disciples still miss it. And it says, as a salient little point here, at the very end it says they are afraid to ask him about it, or they do not speak about it again. They wonder within themselves. Instead of asking Jesus what he means by it, they continue on in their ignorance, and um, this kind of separation that begins in chapter 9 between the disciples and Jesus continues. And they're moving on down the mountain, and they ask him, um, shouldn't Elijah come first? And Jesus says Elijah does come first, and this is in the person of John the Baptist. They don't recognize again that this prophet has come, has prepared the way, and that Jesus is who he says he is. And so we continue moving on. We continue moving on. It's really fast. And they they come off the mountain, and they're moving through. And they come to the other disciples. And the other disciples find themselves in an interesting spot because they have this boy who, from what the Bible tells us, and Mark goes into great detail here about what's happening to him. Um, This boy that it appears to be suffering from epileptic episodes has epilepsy. There's also something else going on as well. Um, Has a spirit within him that is causing him to try to kill himself, to try to drown himself. There's something happening here. And the disciples aren't able to take care of it. And Jesus approaches them, and he says, what are you arguing about? And it's really, it's, it's another moment of clarity, not like Peter's where he declares that he's the Messiah, but this boy's father has an intense moment of clarity where he recognizes this is Jesus. This man can make things happen. This man is healed. So he is obviously aware of who Jesus is at some levels. And so he asks him kind of cheekily, he says, I need somebody to help me. If you can, will you will? 
Um, and Jesus is kind of, he's frustrated by this. You can imagine this man has just shown himself to be God. He's shown a bit of his divinity. He's been healing all before this. He's been um, giving all these examples, and the people still don't believe. You can imagine how exasperated you would be about that. And he gives this statement. He says, um, if I can, of course I can. Everything is possible for one who believes. And so he heals the father's child, this man's child. Um, and this is an interesting moment because you see kind of a, this paradox within this father. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And if that doesn't describe you, um, I think we need to take a deeper look at that because I sure know it describes me. This man is living a paradox, as I think that we all are. And this is a really interesting spot because what does Jesus do? He doesn't say you need to believe more for this to happen. He doesn't say your faith needs to be perfect. He doesn't say those things. And in a similar way, God is not asking that of us either. I think we get trapped in this cycle of I have doubt, I have fears, so my faith isn't good enough. This isn't what the act of faith is about. Faith is a movement towards God with your entire self that says, here I am, do what, use me. And I think that that's what the Father does. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And a good example of this, I think, I'll bring a bit of my story into this. So I go see a therapist fairly regularly for, um, I have anxious thoughts all the time. I struggle with perfectionism. I worry about what people think about me. So you can imagine how calming preaching is, right? <laughs> and do you, know what, do you know what has been really freeing for me? Is that my therapist and I share about this, and I'm talking about, you know, I meet with my bosses. I meet with these people in the hospital. I meet with my friends at my church. I engage with these others, and I worry that I am not good enough. I'm anxious that who I am is not able to meet the needs of those around me, and I'm not able to meet my own needs. And the most freeing thing for me has been <laughs> that, that isn't the case. These things are going to happen. And what I need to focus on is learning to be okay with myself, recognizing that I am enough, and that it is God who meets me in the midst of that. It is not all on me. And this is what I think this father is learning. And this is what I think that God is showing us through this. We are living in this space of we have faith, but our faith is not perfected. Um, and that is okay. Jesus meets us where we are. God takes our hearts of faith wherever they may be at, and it's his work from there on out. So if you don't hear anything else today, know that wherever you are, in whatever your heart of faith, wherever that is, that that is enough, that God takes that and God uses that. It's not all on you. So that's another part of the gospel. That's another part of what Jesus is trying to show us here. And the Father gets it. But what happens right after that? Um, the disciples continue to not understand it. So they move on. They left that place. Mark ends it very abruptly. They left that place, and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Um, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask about it. So we again, like we had in Mark chapter 8, we have Jesus predicting his crucifixion. He's telling them, 
I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, and I will die. And then I will rise. But what happens again? The disciples are afraid. They're afraid about it, and they don't ask him about it, and this disconnect continues. And so structurally, what happens after this and what happens after each of Jesus' crucifixion predictions is Jesus goes into a moment of teaching that points again to the cross and points again to who God really is. And so do you mind going to the next slide, please, Riley? So we find ourselves again at another Mark sandwich, at this space where Mark is using Jesus' teachings and he divides them up. And so think of it as your favorite Subway $5 footlong. There's two things, two pieces of bread, and then you got your filling, and it's trying to tell us something, something at a little deeper level where we have to read a little more closely. So what's going on in this sandwich? Well, there's two things. They're moving on from that place where Jesus has just healed the boy. The father has had this intense moment of clarity where he um, asks Jesus to help him in his faith. And Jesus does this. And this moment is huge because it shows the disciples again and the people around who Jesus is. Um, And so they move through there. And then again, this is probably the most telling they are walking through and Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? What are you speaking about? And the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. I can't think of a more stark um, comparison to describe or display the disciples' true sense of misunderstanding. After all these things have happened, they're arguing about who is the greatest. So that's that's the top layer of bread. They're arguing about Who is the greatest? And Jesus does this really radical thing. Now, remember um, our first point. We're focusing on table. When we're reading, what does Jesus' table look like? What does it mean to be a part of Jesus' table? Who does Jesus set his table for? And as the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus does this thing. He brings a child to him. And it's easy to get confused here because later on in Mark, Jesus says, Become like children. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, become like a child. This is not that passage. In this passage, Jesus says, He took a child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever does not welcome me, or, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And so this is an important moment. Because Jesus is taking a child. And what does this mean? Because we have this 21st century understanding of children. We have a 21st century understanding of what humanity is, what it means to be a human, what it means to have dignity, what it means to be worthy of respect and have a place at the table. Children did not have this in the first century. In fact, the word that Jesus uses for child in the Aramaic could also mean servant. So even culturally, through the language, we see that children are not on the same level as adults. Um, Children are not on the same level as men, right? And Jesus takes this child, and he doesn't say, become like a child to inherit the kingdom of God. He says, welcome the child to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is enormous because, again, we're saying, what is the table? What does the kingdom of God look like? Jesus is taking the table of Rome, he's taking these social norms that they have, 
And he's saying, no, if you want to be a part of my table, if you want to be a part of um, my kingdom, we turn that around and we, mil- we welcome the most vulnerable people to our table. Because here's the deal. If you were a baby in the first century and your parents wanted a son and you were born a girl, they could let you die. And nobody would bat an eye at that because you weren't seen as a human with dignity. You were seen as a piece of property. And so for Jesus to say, welcome the children, is to say, I'm going to take your conception of what power and authority looks like, and I'm going to flip it upside down. And we're going to come from the bottom up. That's what this looks like. It's not from the top down. And so that is the first level of this, of this sandwich. He takes in this vulnerable and um, a, a minority, essentially, a child. And he says, this, this person belongs at my table. This person is welcome. And so this is the first part of the sandwich. And then he, he transitions really, really quickly into this other portion. And you kind of have to wonder what the conversation looked like. Jesus is talking about welcoming the children. And I don't know if the disciples got uncomfortable, but they're like, oh, wait, we, uh, we saw this guy trying to cast out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him um, because he wasn't one of us. And Mark breaks this really quickly here. And I think it's because of a purpose. There's this foreign prophet and he's driving out spirits in Jesus' name. And it doesn't, the text doesn't tell us how this man came to know who Jesus was, the method by which he learned who Jesus is, or how he even knew to go out and do this. All that we know is that the disciples say, he's out casting out demons in your name which is incredibly ironic because if you remember the passage just before, the disciples are not able to do this themselves. They can't cast out this spirit that's within this boy. And so we come to this spot where they're making snap judgments about this man who's casting out demons in Jesus' name and they want him to stop it. It's incredibly ironic. And you can imagine Jesus' face. He's just like, goodness gracious, just like he did before. How long will I have to be with you people? What is happening? It's crazy, and you'll notice here the wording is very, um, it's very important here because the disciples don't say, we asked him to stop because he's never met you, or we, didn't, we asked him to stop because he hasn't heard the message from your mouth, Jesus. He said, we asked him to stop because he's not following us. He's not following us. What does that show you? I, Take some time to introspect, look within yourself, because this is, this is really important. This is kind of the depth of the disciples' misunderstanding. Um, they've turned this beautiful thing into a tribe. He's not doing what we are doing. He's not with us, so therefore, this isn't the right thing. And so we have this sandwich, these layers of we're welcoming the most vulnerable the ones that have no power, we want them to be at the table. We give them dignity. Christ's table, Christ's kingdom is open to them. It is there for them. And then we have this next layer of God is at work in places that we do not know about. The disciples are ignorant of where this person comes from, yet they question it. And they're not even able at the very least to say, the Spirit of God is at work here. The Spirit of God is moving. We have to have it vetted through us. We have to have it go through us for it to be legitimate, all while ignoring that the Spirit is above our comprehension. The work of God, the kingdom of God, is above our control. 
And this is, this is what we do. Um, and it gets, it gets kind of tricky. It gets kind of tricky because we don't like to make Christianity political. It gets uncomfortable. We don't like to make it, um, we don't like to, to be challenged in that way. Or maybe you do. Um, but here's the thing. To declare that Jesus is Lord to declare that God is who he says he is, even if we sometimes draw the wrong conclusion about it, is a powerful statement. To say that Jesus is Lord is to negate and denounce any other power that may be within your life. To declare that Jesus is Lord is to make a very blunt political statement that you are not serving the table of Rome. You are not serving the table of power you are not serving the table of Herod. You are serving the table that welcomes the most vulnerable. You are serving the table that welcomes those that may be unknown to you, where God may be working. So I know that I do this. I know that I definitely do this, just like the disciples do. Um, I can be bigoted. I can absolutely be bigoted. I think about, <laughs> I think about how Kind of like, you know, I, I'm thinking now of how, how Johnny has shared before, I try to find salvation almost in my ideologies or political policies or hopes for um, what I want my society to be. And I can become very bigoted about people that believe opposite of that. Or even in readings of the Bible, I can become very, very bigoted in that. Oh, you read it this way? I don't know how you can do that. I don't know what it is. And I make these snap judgments just like the disciples do, about this foreign prophet, this foreign exorcist. But here's the thing. Jesus allows the benefit of the doubt for this man. He says, those who are not against us are for us. Um, and he says, allow him to continue doing that. Why am I not able to do that? Why do I have so much tension within myself to not allow that movement of the Spirit? Why am I so scared to take a risk why am I scared of the unknown? So um, where does that happen in your life? I would take a moment to think about that. Where are we setting up these boundaries? Where are we saying the table of God stops here? And that's where, that's where it ceases. Where does that happen? I would implore you, I would ask you deeply to meet with your families, meet with your friends, meet with your community here, and ask, where do we do this? Let's look together at this. How can we make the table for everybody? How can we rightly um, understand Jesus' identity? How can we rightly understand what the kingdom of God is here to do? How can we produce redemption and reconciliation for all people? You cannot do this alone. I can't do this alone. I need you all to be there with me to do it. And this is what I think Jesus is getting at when at the end of this passage he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And admittedly, salty has a much different connotation in our generation today, right? Whenever you're saying salty, you're like, people are getting salty, they're upset, they're mad, they're jealous of you. There's all kinds of things. Jesus is talking about something completely different. Saltiness is, um, is a lot of things, but I think what it's teaching us here. And what I think is important for us to remember here is saltiness is empathy. If the disciples had had empathy in these moments, 
to go out and maybe instead of saying, hey, stop casting out demons in Jesus' name, ask a story. Be curious. Where did you come from? How, how did you arrive here? Where are you at? I want to know who you are and more about you. Making the empathetic connection in the name of Jesus because he's already doing this. So where does that happen for you? Where does that happen for us as a community of Missio? And where does that happen for us as the Christian community in Salt Lake City? Where can we reach out and make these connections? Where can we go have empathetic curiosity to do this? I think that we can also um, do this with humility. We do this with humility. The saltiness is also humility. We look at the disciples and how they knew who Jesus was. God even spoke it from the heavens to say, this is my son whom I love. And they identify him correctly, but they still draw the wrong conclusion about it. And because of where they are, because of their assurity of who the Messiah is supposed to be, they miss it throughout this whole narrative. So I would ask you to look within yourself, where is this for you? Where do you maybe identify Jesus as Lord? Maybe you make that political statement. Maybe you make that salvific statement. But we draw the wrong conclusions about it. How can we come together as a community and say, where are we drawing the wrong conclusions about this? Are we drawing the wrong conclusions about this? I think that's a space where we have to be incredibly humble, where we have to be open, and we're just like the father in this story. We have to say, God, please help our unbelief. Help our self-preservation, where we desperately cling to what we've always known, to what we've been taught, and help us to have a looser hand and it may very well be right, but to at least say, we need to look at this. We need to be aware. We need to be present with where others might be at. So I would invite you to talk to that with the people that are close to you, the people that you love, the people that you trust. Ask them, hey, do you see in me, am I drawing the wrong conclusion about who Jesus is somewhere in my life? Do you think that I'm doing this? And then also be bold enough to maybe share with another person, your friend, where you see that not out of a place of judgment, not out of a place of scarcity and self-preservation, but out of a place of love and connection. So where can, we, uh, where can we get some application out of this? What can we rightfully do um, to go into this week, to go into our lives and apply some of this? And I think there's a couple things that we can do. Um, and they're really, they're really simple or at least they seem simple. One, you can invite somebody to dinner. You can say, I would love to hear your story. I would love to connect with you. I would love to open table to you. I would love to sit with you and be with you. That's one way. Another thing we can do, who can you engage with at work or out in your day-to-day? -day? How can you open table to those folks and risk by having a conversation with them, risk by being with them um, as the presence of God? And I think the hardest one, and the one that speaks to me the most, and as I was preparing and reflecting on this, was how can you also learn to accept yourself? How can you also learn to look within and say that I am also a part of the kingdom of God? I am also welcomed at the table. If you're like me, I often have these thoughts of I'm not good enough. I messed up. Oh my goodness. Like now I have to like repent and, you know, beat myself up. That's not what the kingdom is calling us to do. The kingdom of God 
the noblest and truest act of this faith movement, of what Jesus was all about, is also accepting that you are accepted where you sit right now. God is present and, and God is with you. God takes your heart. He takes your unbelief like the Father. And he says, it's not all on you. I am here also. He works through us. And so I would invite you to um, also learn to accept that you are accepted. Sit with that. This is the tension. Um, and if you want to go to the next slide, I might have actually... Oh, yeah, I skipped over one, so that's fine. It was a Richard Rohr quote. He's amazing. Go read Rohr. <laughs> so, because um, this is the thing, in accepting yourself, in setting a large table, in breaking out of the self-preservation and um, ideology of scarcity, in confronting this failure that we all experience, and... Um, in learning that the way of God, the heart of God, is through suffering. We have, to have, um, we have to have an open mind and an open heart to it. So I think this sums it up well because it makes us scared, it makes us fearful, and it causes us to rethink everything. And what John here is calling us to do is um, reach out in love and not be in fear. We buy into fear, we allow it to control us, but if we understand who Jesus is and his identity and what God's heart is about, then um, love casts that out. So he says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so, Missio, I would invite you today. Um, I know that was a lot. That was a lot to get through. I'm sorry that some of it was sort of rambly, but I hope that you learned today a few things. So, what are our four things? What does Jesus' table look like? It looks like this, that we come to each week, we break bread together, we um, dip it in the cup, and we profess that just as the bread is broken, Jesus was broken for love's sake. Just as Jesus poured his blood out for us, we are poured out for love's sake. This is the table. But the table is also bigger than that. The table expands to people that we don't expect it to expand to. Just like the foreign prophet, there's things happening and there's things moving in the world by the power and the Spirit of God that we are not aware of until we ask about it, until we make empathetic connection and be with people. So that's the first thing. I hope that you focus again and reflect on what God's table looks like. The second thing that I hope that you reflect on is Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? What is God's heart? If there's anything that we've learned from Mark and from the Gospels and from the entire Bible is that the way of God, the heart of God, is through self-sacrificial love, is through service, is becoming a servant to others, and it's welcoming um, those on the outside and serving them. And so as you move throughout your week, as you move throughout your days, be aware of that as well. Jesus' identity is your identity. If you call yourself a Christian, that is your identity. You are of Christ. You are of God's heart. Be in community, pray for each other, be with one another. But this is your identity, to be in service of those. And it's not for you to be afraid of, um, because this perfect love that Christ has given us will cast out our fear. The third thing that I hope you are aware of and remember is that you will fail and that this is okay. This is perfectly okay. Jesus doesn't condemn or cast out the disciples. 
In fact, he does the very opposite. He sticks with them. Like I said earlier, in John, he calls them friends. Christ is with you. This is not a weight to be put upon you. This isn't just another thing to do. This requires a mind shift. This requires a, um, a huge shift in thought, a huge shift in belief. This isn't another thing for you to do. This is a thing that we are doing. So be prayerful with one another um, and reach out and, be, and realize that you will fail and that, that that is okay. God is with you. God is present with you. The God that carried the cross is walking right along with you as you bear your cross. And the fourth thing um, is connected with that third thing, the failure. The way of God is through suffering, and the way of God is through being there for others. So, um, yeah. So, Missio, uh, I would ask you to set large tables. I would ask you to learn stories. I would ask you to be curious and be humble. Look for God where you do not expect God. And also, look for God within yourself. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. We're so thankful for space to be with one another. We're thankful for space to be with each other and to be with um, you. We thank you for the table where we can come together and be reminded of your sacrifice. We're thankful for your word that reminds us um, of the ministry that you did here on earth and also the reminder that you call us to continue that ministry here today. God, I just pray that these folks would leave with a sense of mission. They would leave with a sense of grace for each other and themselves. And they would leave with the knowledge that your table looks radically different. The way in which you structure your kingdom is completely different from the way in which they see power structures throughout their lives. God, I pray that we would each be open. I pray that we would each be curious. And I, would e I pray that we would each be um, welcoming and open to your movement in our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen.